I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. 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 Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I am Tom. Mount Zion is better than Mount Sinai. Bionic. Boy, that's uh, that's a pretty intriguing middle name we have this week. Indeed. Uh, Mr. Bionic, can you explain that a little bit before we get started into the Future Quake Show? Well, uh, I've noticed that a, a great way to interpret uh, the book of Hebrews is um, through this whole idea of like how Zion is better than Sinai. It's yeah. it's kind of a homily, uh, if you will, of from a, a now is that that stuff that's like corn? Yeah, it's homily grits. You know, it's okay. sort of like you make you know regular grits Sorry. out of put cheese in it. And yeah, I, I don't know. I don't eat this stuff. Uh, it looks like wallpaper paste to me. Yeah. But, um, but there's all these interrelated themes in Hebrews. Yeah. And you can't immediately kind of put your finger on what exactly the main point is, but you can see that it's yeah. all interrelated. So like, what is he trying to explain? And um, through a bunch of different readings, I came to the conclusion that the whole thing is he's contrasting uh, the excellency of Mount Zion and the heavenly, the heavenly hill that that the Lord now sits on in the city mm-hmm. and his temple and all that stuff. Where you know they're using like gold as pavement. You know, right. we got to pave something. Go get the gold uh, to Sinai, which is a completely different different thing. Hmm. Um, wow. I, I, mean, I think that's a fascinating concept because symbolically, Mount Sinai represents the law. Well, I'll give you some other interesting. Yeah, exactly. And like, a covenant of mutual responsibilities mm-hmm. uh, that's involved. Mm-hmm. Mount Zion is like the end game. Well, you can. I mean, you can go on and on. In the Book of Hebrews, uh, you'll notice that all the quotes uh, come from the Septuagint version of of uh, the Old Testament. Now that's in sig- Hebrews. In Hebrews. Right. Yeah. Now that's significant because what's going on there is if you go to the Septuagint, if you go to the Old Testament uh, in what they call the Divine Suzerainty Treaty, uh, when Moses went up on the mountain and had mm-hmm. the big meal, uh, all of that stuff plays in with this thing called a Suzerainty Treaty. When, when a one king overtook another king's land and his possessions and everything, yeah. the people that were in charge, he didn't just slay them all all the time. Sometimes he would go and say, look, I'm the new boss. You guys, I'm I'm now king, and you guys are my people. Mm-hmm. And they'd sit down, and he'd, he'd lay out the terms, and if they agreed to it, you know, they'd say, okay, and then they'd have a big feast. Ah. <clears throat> so the interesting, one of the interesting things about this is that, uh, well, obviously you see the Last Supper, you know, Jesus mm-hmm. having this big feast with people, and uh what is he doing? He's washing their feet. Yeah. You know, all of these things. It's totally, mm-hmm. totally different. Uh, whereas in Mount Sinai, you go there. Moses is acting as the mediator, uh, and in the in the Old Testament, uh, in the Old Testament Hebrew, it reads a little bit differently than the Old Testament in the Septuagint uh, that that mm-hmm. suzerainty treaty. And specifically, what you see is that. The suzerainty treaty in the Septuagint has... Now, this is the one about Sinai you're talking yeah, about. Sinai. Yeah, Sinai. You know, Moses going up on the mountain and all that yeah. stuff. Um, and as it, when it's described in various places, there's much more emphasis put on the angels there. 
as as mediating forces in the Septuagint, like God's there with his angels. Now, you're talking about the Exodus narrative of going to Mount Sinai or the other ones in the other Pentateuch, too? Um, refer to it. Yes, I think. Okay. And just for our listeners, if they're not, this is not part of tomorrow's tremors, which is what we're going to talk about today. But <laughs> Sorry, this I derailed is an the old tremor. This yeah. is like a past tremor. Yeah. Uh, it's the a Septuagint. earthquake resurrection, you might say. Yeah, exactly. Um, hi, Dave, if you're listening out there. Um, <laughs> the, uh, um, the Septuagint was basically a Greek version of the Old Testament that predates what we use now with the Masoretic text, right? Um, yes. As I understand it, mm-hmm. uh, it was done because basically everybody spoke Greek, including in Israel at the time when mm-hmm. they did it. Um, it was used by Jesus. That was the one he used when he was on earth, mm-hmm. quoted from. Paul mm-hmm. used it mm-hmm. sometime about, what, 100 A.D.? That's when yeah. they got together. I, 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 don't, I mean, I wouldn't say that it's like you know, everybody was hanging out with the Septuagint. It was just okay. a manuscript tradition that enjoyed a special status for people who spoke Greek who were non-Jews. Mm-hmm. Especially because they could... But they also, didn't the priests and others also use it too? In some cases. I thought so. Uh, but in, in many other cases, you see them clearly quoting from, you know, the Hebrew text. But the older stuff's not available anymore. That's no. what I understand. You know. It's okay. Not. All right. Um, Sorry, I didn't mean to distract. I just want to make sure people understood yeah. when you mean Septuagint. Yeah, I'm glad this you is, pointed that out. This too. is something I may be, people may incredible. be going, yep, I need to go Yeah, they just find ha- a new... <laughs> heresy hunted you. <laughs> Yeah. I hear all the cars pulling up in the in the uh-huh. front yeah. of the compound. Okay. So, uh, anyway, all of this stuff with the more, uh, there's a much heavier emphasis on the and the role of role of uh, angels there in the Septuagint yeah. and that whole stuff. Yeah. Um, and what you see, the first thing that that the uh, uh, that the writer of Hebrews is doing in chapter one is comparing and contrasting uh, Jesus, how much more excellent he is than the angels. Right. Which is cool, you know. Uh, uh, cool because he's you know quoting from the Septuagint and it's you know it's you know who knows if they're really what he had in mind but which is us 20th century Christians wouldn't even think to do that comparison because we think of them as apples and oranges mm-hmm. and we don't see why there'd be a comparison because we wouldn't know a role that if I understand you right that the angels may have played at brokering the Sinai covenant yeah well Sinai. I mean who knows there it's mentioned it's you know it's just mentioned that they're there in much more detail yeah. in the Septuagint. It's not necessarily like and then they showed up with the lawnmower and the yeah, you know yeah, yeah. two turtle doves and the partridge in the pear tree. Right, right. Um but it, it there's a, a little bit more emphasis in the way the Septuagint reads and that they're there. Okay. So um I mean I've totally disra- derailed our tomorrow's tremor. That's here, okay. I'm fascinated by it. Ladies and gentlemen, Brother Tom is working on some really fascinating stuff. That he, He's got an incredible mind I can't keep up with. And he's doing some research that I would love to join him with. Uh, if I can get out of some mundane stuff and really get into what he's doing. But he, he's so far ahead, and, and I keep telling him, as soon as he's ready to lay it on us, to lay it on us. Somebody's okay? laying something on somebody here. Okay, I'm the- seriously. I... I uh, because I'm thinking about when you're talking about Moses dealing with angels and the other folks there, it relates to some research you're doing about the prophets mm-hmm. and the kind of high company that they hung out with uh, that I'm hoping you'll talk to us about sometime soon. Yeah, sometime. And, and when I think about the angels being there with Moses, I guess it's not a surprise in the book of Jude when you see two angels fighting over, high-level angels, mm-hmm. fighting over archangels, the body of Moses. Yeah. yeah, a cherub and an archangel. Yeah, well... Yeah, them and the uh, the glorious ones. That's kind of the next interesting thing. 
Mm-hmm. There are some places, notably I think in First Peter, that I've noticed that it seems to be that the glorious ones might be different than angels. So it's like, hmm. Stop it, you're blowing my mind, Tom Bionic. Oh, don't worry. I can't if you can tell it. If you can make heads or tails of it, I mean, well, please tell me. In the meantime, we've got some rather mundane stories to read mm-hmm. in our Tomorrow's Trimmers. Would you like to uh, join, uh, start into something? I would love to. We'll try to, how about we keep this moving mm-hmm. uh, a lot here. Okay. And uh, hey, by the way, I, I'll, I'll embarrass you on air. Is that your John Deere hat you left in the studio oh my gosh. last time? Yeah, I've been looking all over for it. It's my favorite hat, actually. Is it? They really? make a high quality hat as well as a high quality right. lawnmower. Okay. Pyro pointed out, thought it yeah. was yours. I thought it was David Payne's. I thought he yeah, was John a John Deere. David, David yeah, David Payne, John Deere kind yeah. of thing. Okay, give us a story. All right. Uh, this is via uh, uh, foreign policy. And, uh, is that a magazine or a newspaper? It's uh, well, I got it from their blog. It might be. I think it's a. It's like a quarterly paper that they okay. send out, kind of a defense-oriented thing. Council of Foreign Relations, or mm, it might be. Okay. I, although I don't get that sense. Okay. Um, this is by a lady named Paula Broadwell, okay. and she's an Afghanistan correspondent. Interestingly, mm. she was the lady who was handpicked to do, uh, handpicked, I believe, to do General Petraeus's. Uh, biography, so she sort of has unlimited access to him there mm. over in Afghanistan. Yeah, and um, this is it's it's interesting. There's a couple things. I'll, I'll read the story, and then she in the comment section she sort of lays out some other things, and okay. we can we can then contrast that with uh, uh, a city in um, uh, a city in uh, Vietnam called Don Doc Bray, I believe. Okay. Yep. So okay. anyway, laying off. Uh, this is Paula Broadwell. Uh, it was early October, and combined and combined Joint Task Force One Three Twentieth was licking their wounds. A week earlier, One Three Twentieth had just lost several KIA and WIA soldiers from heavy fighting in the Taliban-infested uh, Argandab River Valley. After suffering the tragic tragic losses and horrific daily amputees throughout the week, the men were terrified to go back into the pomegranate orchards to continue clearing their AO. It seemed like certain death. The Taliban had planted IEDs in a dense pattern through their AO, um, and even the commander, uh, David Flynn... Explain their AO, who their AO uh, is. It's uh, their objective. Um, they they used it in different contexts. Administrative officer? Uh, no, it's a, it's, it's a specific parcel of land that they're, okay. you know... Their AO is the place where they have to clear and get Taliban out. I don't know. I don't know the acronym, but okay. it, context sort of makes that a little bit more clear. Um, uh, even the commander David Flynn was concerned about the potential loss of life, but they could not afford to lose momentum. The artillery unit, acting as a provisional infantry battalion, went on to offensive to clear a village, <clears throat> Tarek Kalech where the Taliban had conducted an, Im- an intimidation campaign to chase the villagers out, then create a staging base to attack the I-320th outposts. The village of Tarok Kalash was laden with IEDs and homemade explosives comprised of 50-gallon drums of deadly munitions. Spe- special operations forces conducted a successful clearing raid in the village. Uh, then Flynn introduced the mine-clearing line charge, a rocket-propelled explosive um, the plan was for one team to clear a 600-meter path uh, from one of his combat outposts. Um, on and on and on and on. So anyway, there's all this fighting going on. <coughs> um, why is it that my voice always starts cracking as soon as I start 
talking in front of the future Quake Mike. I, I apologize. You're folks. intimidated by me, that's it. Uh, well, you and Pyro. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, anyway, they, they, they go on the offensive here, and they clear the city out, right? And October Flynn, October 6th, Flynn's unit approved the use of HIMARS B1 and ATANS to drop 49,200 pounds of ordnance on the Taliban tactical base of Tarak Kalush. Um, uh, even though that they had cleared all the Taliban out, their clearance of Babur uh, and Babur Sofla, Kolopulash Sofla, and other villages commenced October 7th, aided by USSF uh, and an additional infantry army. Uh, uh, company from B1I22N. So what's going on here is they've decided that though these villages are clear, we're mm-hmm. still going to, you know, go through them one more time. Uh, we're still going to drop ordnance on them, mm-hmm. 49,000 pounds of ordnance. Um, and not long after, Flynn shared one insight into the burden of command. I literally cringed when we dropped bombs on these places, not because I cared about the enemy we were killing or the HME destroyed, but I knew the reconstruction would consume the re- remainder of my deployed life. Um, Flynn had received immediate guidance from his chain of command in November that he was uh, that there was a full-scale push to rebuild the villages. Um, General Petraeus had visited the site in December and told Flynn he could approve up to $1 million in projects. So you're going to rebuild the city with you know, a million dollars. Um, <clears throat> the Afghan Civilian Assistance Program and I-320th all got together with a bunch of other acronyms uh, to rebuild the place. Flynn's build approach was an inclusive one. Flynn also wanted a true um, uh, solution, uh, demanding that all the Afghans from the village work this issue together, uh, led by their, their mayor, uh, called the Malik. Um, compensation for, quote, clearing, unquote, operations is not simple. Land ownership is a complex issue, issue in Afghanistan, especially land purchased from the government. Um, very few landowners or tenants in the rural areas have deeds, and the provincial ministries will not issue a deed unless there is proof, uh, proof the owners paid taxes in the past. Um, but by mid-December, team, Flynn's team had also evacuated and assessed damage to the ditch irrigations, the roads, the mosques, and the homes. Uh, and during the December visit by General Petraeus, they had discussed planting pomegranate seedlings um, and alternative commodity crops uh, to replace the pomegranate fruit trees destroyed in the process. Um, so there's no, f- there's no more food here. They've destroyed the whole place. Uh, you know, their way of life is mm-hmm. destroyed. Uh, he recognized that the villagers need to regain some form of livelihood and incorporate the crop regeneration into his overall rebuild plan. So they've taken everything from these guys, and now mm-hmm. it's like, well, we can plant some trees. On that December visit, Petraeus commended Flynn's efforts and relayed them to M.G. James Terry, the R.C. South commanding general, to take a similar approach to what uh, to what the I-3 Tony is doing on a grander scale as it applies to districts north of... Uh, Argandab, which is another city there. Mm-hmm. Um, what 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 raised this story with you? What was the big well, kick that? <clears throat> um, hearts and minds. Um, unfortunately, I, I guess it may not be clear to some of the listeners, mm-hmm. or, or maybe even Doctor Future. Um, but the whole idea of you know we're going to go out there and win hearts and minds. I don't know how destroying an entire village to the point where 
there aren't any aren't even mm-hmm. orchards left. That's how it's doing that. It sounds like we're 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 digging ditches and then filling them again. Exactly. We wipe out something and then mm-hmm. restore everything, which sounds like some of the kind of ridiculousness you heard in Vietnam mm-hmm. to a T. In fact, that's where I was going next with this. Okay. Um, Paula Broadwell, the lady who wrote this, says uh, in the comment section, indeed, clearing operations are necessary are a necessary evil to weed out the Taliban, and they often leave devastating destruction in the wake. Firstly, I suspect our forces flatter themselves on the effect of operations like this. It's likely the Taliban were not destroyed, or at least most of them weren't, and are circulating in the vicinity. Also, they probably have some brand new recruits infuriated that Americans came to their village and used 24 tons of high explosives to blow blow it to kingdom come. Uh, She writes further, If I was a 20-year-old Afghan whose home had been vaporized by people from the other side of the planet, I know what I would be doing to seek vengeance. My guess in the great scheme of things, of things, this event will be accreditive to the great swelling, swelling failure of our entire effort in that land, despite the well-meaning efforts of LTC David Flynn and the brave soldiers under his command. I am looking forward to more breathless accounts um, on our march to victory in Afghanistan. And I'm sure that last thing was sort mm-hmm. of tongue-in-cheek. Right. right. Um, so yeah. it's like, how much do you think if all the money spent? Annihilating and all the, you know, those are expensive bombs <coughs> that are dropped. You know, this isn't like mm-hmm. doing something s- simple, sending a bunch of punks or bikers to destroy a town. It, you're, you're, you're taking millions and millions of dollars of ordinance that we paid, you know, fortune for to mm-hmm. build, wipe it out, and then we go back and pay to rebuild all of it. How much do you think that money would go if we kept those soldiers on our borders and ch- checking like packages that came in on our shipping and ports? Mm-hmm. And along our border, and that, and the money they spent circulated back in our own economy, where all that money was here in our economy, and whatever was being spent was just going back into that. Do you, do you think the American public would be better off? Maybe. I'm sure that I'm sure that this bombing has some sort of intrinsic value that I'm just not seeing. Now, for defense <laughs> contractors, this does very well for them. I mean, they're doing well, mm-hmm. but but. Who's paying them is not people outside our country. It's a redistribution of wealth from mm-hmm. the general public of the United States to defense contractors. Mm-hmm. And this is just the context for that redistribution of wealth. Yeah. Right? Reading all of this. Um, and having been one myself, it takes one to know one. So no, There you go. Yeah. There you go. Reading all this, and as you mentioned, um, really brought back something I'd read in a history book. Yeah. Um, it's one of the most famous quotes of the Vietnam War. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a statement attributed to an unnamed U.S. officer by Peter Arnett, mm-hmm. uh, writing about the provincial cabinet <clears throat> Ben Trey in February 7, 1968. Arnett said, it became necessary to destroy the town to save it, a uh, United States major said today. Just thinking the same thing. That's really That's what... That's a famous quote from me, and yeah. I was saying that same thing. Yeah. He was talking about the decision by Allied commanders to bomb and shell the town regardless of civilian casualties to rout the Viet Cong. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know... Right. If it moves... It you know, but it starts sounding a little ridiculous after a while. Yeah, it all seems so very clear cut. Those are bad guys over there. We just go hunt them out, get rid of them, and then we go back about our business. Well, never quite turns out that way, does it? No. Well, the the thing that really interests me the most on this sort of level and scale of violence, uh, people will have differing moral views on it. But one of the things that you see, or one of the things that I've been noticing when you read Matthew five, yeah. is that there's a progression. Uh, after you get out of the Beatitudes, 
there's a progression of things, you know, blessed are these, mm-hmm. blessed are that. And what it seems to be, what it seems to start out with is like, uh, Jesus is sort of talking. There seems to be a progression of like unmaking people, you know, by the time mm-hmm. where you're getting, you know, where he says, uh, you know, uh, don't call don't call your brother uh, if somebody says rocket to their brother they're right. in danger of the judgment right. what they've done is gone very far down the slide and the slope of really unmaking their unmaking their brother to the point where he's like almost not even human and mm-hmm. it's just like oh well i can just spit on this person because i've unmade them in my own mind mm-hmm. or make make them naked and, and put them up in pyramids and stuff like that mm-hmm. put hoods on them electrodes yeah, because it's and- it's after all like look i mean Take their holy book and flush it down the toilet, and mm-hmm. they're all of these dogs. things. And uh, exactly, you you know exactly yeah. where I'm going with it. It's like we're you yeah. know hooked up to the same machine or something. Mm-hmm. You read I the know. same. It's pretty scary. Quote unquote propaganda. No, I'm get, sorry, that was a little bit. You have to get us. No, 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 no. That no. was a little bit. I don't know. No. Mine's. Uh, I'm sure. We'll, I'm sure I'll get some hate mail. I have sort of a drug. Yeah, I'm. I'm figuring we probably need to try to keep these more like eight minute a piece, or at least mm-hmm. part one, part two, because because. Uh, People's interest. Same thing goes for me here too. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm on. I'm still on a druggy kick. This is something we've alluded to in other stories, but this is such an important story that when there's a new update, we need to let people know. Uh, this is from Infowars reporting from others. Health authorities want depression-causing drugs added to water supply. Mm. Health authorities are pushing for drugs to be added to public water supplies that cause depression and memory loss as a new study shows that the dangerous statins have been deliberately underplayed by drug companies. In a chilling throwback to how the population in Aldous Huxley's Brave New World were mass-medicated with Soma to keep them docile and easy to control. Statins are taken by tens of millions of people worldwide, a boon for drug companies like Merck, whose chief executive Henry Gadsden back in 1975 dreamed of being able to sell a drug to people who had no immediately identifiable illness. Or as Mike Adams writes, they needed a way to sell drugs to healthy people. Statins Great. Were, yeah. Statins were born and the financial windfall. He's like, we need to make dollar signs, so we'll work backwards and well, come up with a story for One it. of the things that, I, I hate to cut you off here, but one of the things that's really interesting is, you know, Monsanto and other the, the other companies that make genetically modified foods. Mm-hmm. They all had a meeting and they said, "Well, what should we make our end goal be?" By the way, do you know how they how we know they had that meeting or? Uh, well, it was it was all revealed by you know Jeffrey Smith here on Future okay. Quake, this show called Future Quake. Yep. Sort of, um, you heard it? I think I've heard of it. Yeah, uh, I drop in occasionally on it. One of the, <laughs> one of the things that he mentioned way back when we interviewed him, gosh, it must mm-hmm. have been three or four years ago now. Um, you well, must have just gotten to Future Quake. Though. That was that was an early one. Yeah, that, that was, was right, one. like about the time you showed up, or a mm-hmm. few months after that. Yep. One of the things that he said is they all got together, had a big meeting, and said, "Okay, why don't? What's our end goal? What would be the end mm-hmm. product of all this?" And they said, "Well, to have the ideal world is to have a hundred percent of the seeds in the world manufactured by us, so people have to buy anything growing. They have to buy mm-hmm. from us." And he said. And they said, okay, well, how do we work backwards from that? Yeah. And you see all these crazy things like the suicide belt in India where, you know, they right. sell him these knowingly genetif- genetically modified Terminator seeds which only mm-hmm. germinate once and then die and they can't use new seeds and they, mm-hmm. don't, they don't get, you know, it's all sterile. Their so way of life for a thousand years or more is suddenly wiped out. Yeah. yeah. It makes me wonder if maybe the drug companies might have had a similar meeting and said, well, what's, what's our end goal? Okay, mm-hmm. 100% of the people... 
needing to buy our uh, needing yeah. to buy our, our our products. Yeah. So how do we? The, right. the question is how does how do we get stuff mm-hmm. to the people who are essentially healthy who don't need yeah. our? They our do stuff. that in public in public education. They do that in all these areas. Here's the end game we want to get to, and and really that's an effective way mm-hmm. to meet your goals, whatever your goals are, mm-hmm. whether they're good or bad. It's an effective way to be sure you define clearly your goal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's true for churches. That's true for any kind of group. Personal life, define your goal and then work backwards. Mm-hmm. So it comes very clear that that's what these people do mm-hmm. is how to do it. And then it suddenly makes sense what they're doing. It's not all accidental things we hear in the news and press releases. Mm-hmm. Everything's carefully compl- yeah. you can plan. You can Once you know what they're doing, it's like in a data th- Data yeah. thing suddenly you can draw a line and it's like wow these data points fall right on this right, line right makes logical sense mm-hmm. okay statins were born and the financial windfall for big pharma quickly followed drug companies claim that statins have been proven to lower cholesterol and help prevent heart disease and strokes leading many health experts to insist that they be artificially added to public water supplies but dangerous side effects buried by drug companies con- conducting statin trials have now come to light. In addition to the fact that, for three-quarters of those taking them, they offer little or no value. A new study published in the uh, Cochrane Library, which reviews drug trials, examined data of 14 drug trials involving 34,000 patients and found evidence of short-term memory loss, depression, and mood swings uh, that had been deliberately underplayed by the drug companies funding the research. The researchers warned that statins should only be described to those with heart disease or has suffered the condition in the past. Researchers warned that unless a patient is at high risk of suffering a heart attack or stroke, statins may do more harm than good. However, despite the fact that statins have also been linked to a greater risk of liver dysfunction, acute kidney fa- uh, failure, cataracts and muscle damage, uh, health authorities have been pushing for the drug to be added to the public water supplies as part of a mass medication program that is not only illegal without consent, but also threatens a plethora of unknown consequences. Mm. Only last week, uh, George Lundberg, MD, the editor of MedPage Today, which is a mouthpiece for the American Medical Association, I think that's uh, Watson's commentary there, mm-hmm. wrote an op-ed entitled, Should We Put Statins in the Water Supply? You know, everybody's getting in line for this, aren't they? Everybody mm-hmm. wants to put their stuff in there. If we could have a drug that would make people listen to Future Quake and just send us lots of money, That'd maybe cool. we should come up with something we could put it in the yeah. water supply. But, you know, unfortunately, all of our listeners probably have the water filters, <laughs> you know, to get the fluoride out and get that drug out, too. Yeah. So uh, so anyway, uh, uh, in May 2008, renowned cardiologist Professor Mahindra Varma called for statins to be artificially added to drinking water. Putting statins in the water supply was also considered during a November 2008 discussion which featured Robert Bonau, M.D. of Northwestern University in Chicago, uh, Gordon Tomaselli, M.D. of Johns Hopkins, and Anthony DeMera, M.D. of the University of California, San Diego. Also in November 2008, CNBC aired a segment lauding the effectiveness of statins, after which one of the hosts remarked, why don't they just put statins in the water supply? To which CNBC's medical expert replied, a lot of people has said that, and they are in the water, in fact. The idea of adding drugs to the water supply to biochemically manipulate the thoughts and emotions of populations has gone from the realm of science fiction in Aldous Huxley's Brave New World to where people were mass-medicated with Soma uh, to keep them docile and easy to control to an imminent reality. 
Indeed, during during a March 2019. Now, now, what exactly is what are they when they say imminent reality, or imminent? Is it E M M E N T? I M M. I uh, yeah. Imminent. Like it could happen soon. Yeah, imminent. Okay. Uh, like imminency of Christ's return. Mm-hmm. Okay. Indeed, during a March 20, 1962 Berkeley University speech, Huxley spoke of how humans would be made to quote love their servitude via the state-sponsored in- introduction of mind-altering drugs. It goes back to that pharmacia. Well, it certainly Revelation works. 18. It certainly works for a bunch of people that I know. Yeah. They're just like, well, you know, maybe the state has done all those bad things historically, but look, I mean. You know, I, I was a government worker, so I need to yeah. support them. Yeah. Well, what do you do? You care about truth? Do you care mm-hmm. about an absolute morality? And they go, there is no such thing as an absolute morality. I hope these aren't Christian people saying this. Uh, some of them identify themselves yeah. as Christians. Yeah. That's the scary thing. Yeah, we've lost this. It's like we're it's like we're wandering around in the dark, and we've got these huge yeah. edifices of, you know. For those people, they don't need any more drugs. They're Job done. Totally. Mission accomplished. Mm-hmm. Somebody get that guy a flight suit with polka dots on it. Yep. You don't have to say, hey, Kool-Aid. Yeah, no. Hey, Kool-Aid's yeah. been drunk. All right. Yeah. It says, uh, <clears throat> there will be, in the next generation or so, a pharmacological method of making people love their servitude. This is Aldous Huxley talking. And producing dictatorship without tears, so to speak. Producing a kind of painless concentration camp for entire societies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that people will, in fact, have their liberties taken away from them, but will rather enjoy it because they've been distracted from any desire to rebel by propaganda or brainwashing or brainwashing enhanced by pharmacological methods. Uh, and this seems to be the final revolution, says Huxley. In a 2008 paper titled Fluoride in the Future, Population-Level Cognitive Enhancement, Oxford professor Julian Savulescu explored how populations of the future could be mass-medicated through pharmacological cognitive enhancements added to the water supply. In December 2009, we reported on how Japanese health authorities were considering adding tracing amounts of lithium to the water public water supplies as a mood stabilizer in a bid to lower the suicide rate. Fox News medical expert Dr. Archel Giorgio gave the concept tacit approval when she labeled the study an interesting concept and refused to even mention the moral aspects of mass drugging people against their will. It's interesting because that's a really a consistent theme with a lot of people who really play ball with New World Order stuff. Ethics goes out the windows. You mm-hmm. know, they're like, ethics, who cares? Well, relativism comes in handy because you mm-hmm. you look at what what your mm-hmm. the ends justifies the means. Yeah, um, uh, Marx, you know, one of the things Marx did, yeah. we were talking about this on the phone, maybe I'll talk about it mm-hmm. here next. Marx, uh, he couldn't refute capitalism. So he just disparaged it as, like, yeah. not right ideologically or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. And in a sense, it seems to me we're fighting the same philosophical argument, but with a far subtler edge to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, even back in the communism those days, the idea yeah. was that they reach over into the sense of unreason and pull back these values over over yeah. into themselves and say, all right, well, these are my values, even though it comes from oppression hey, and unreason. It comes back to the, we, we have to uh, destroy a village to save it. It all makes sense it's now. It's another manifestation yeah, of it. Yeah, and it's interesting. We got it, like, like, for example, this next sentence here. It says, in the 1977 book uh, Echo Science, current White House science czar John Holdren also advocated adding sterilant drugs to the water supply 
is part of a program of involuntary fertility control. Mm-hmm. Okay? Well, and that's been that's, that's destroying the village of fertility of those people mm-hmm. to save the planet. Mm-hmm. That's that's what it's, and they get to decide who gets to pay the sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, a huge number of Americans are already being mass medicated against their will through the water supply by the artificial addition of sodium fluoride, from which one of a myriad of debilitating health effects includes lowered IQ and increased docility. Indeed, as Joseph, Joseph Borkin documented in his book, The Crime and Punishment of I.G. Farben, the first occurrence of artificially fluoridated drinking water on Earth was found in Germany's Nazi prison camps. The Nazis explained that the reason for mass medicating water with sodium fluoride was to sterilize women and coerce the victims of their concentration camps into calm submission. Mm-hmm. So, wow. There you go. Um, I... We are. It real, 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 we are really fighting sort of the same philosophical thing. It's it's a it's it's a descent into unreason. It's a descent mm-hmm. into believing a lie. But when you're elite, you get to decide who pays the sacrifice for everybody else. And it's never the elite is the one mm-hmm. that makes the sacrifice. It's everybody else. And when when we believe American exceptionalism, when we can go over and bomb villages of people who are nameless and faceless to us mm-hmm. because it may serve our purpose and agenda later, we're doing the same thing Aldous Huxley was just talking about. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing about that is that, you know, we're both Christians here. The kingdom of God flips that whole thing. It's like uh, one of the ways that you can look in God is through... Uh, his ability to sort of break through and do something and win the day in a way that nobody would mm-hmm. ever expect. And um, uh, uh, with Jesus coming, I mean, who who in their right minds, you know, the Pharisees, certainly not, mm-hmm. the people, the, 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 the riffraff, quote, unquote, uh, n- nobody, nobody in their mm-hmm. right mind would say, he, God sends his appointed son to die. The kingdom of God is here and now, and it's here in in love, in sacrifice, mm-hmm. in um, uh, loving others, getting your eyes off yourself, in doing what I tell you to do, uh, and that's where mm-hmm. the true—that's where mm-hmm. true peace and, and a kingdom where the king serves the subjects mm-hmm. and washes their feet. Yes. that's why you see the 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 spirit we were just talking about in the stuff like mm-hmm. Huxley and others is embodied perfectly in the Antichrist who takes over and destroys large groups of people for an agenda he has. Mm-hmm. That benefits a small group of elite people allied with him. You know mm-hmm. the ten kings and others. It says with a few people and great intrigue, he conquers many kingdoms. And there's total widespread destruction uh, because he's totally obsessed mm-hmm. with himself. And other elites latch on to him. Whereas the kingdom of heaven, you're talking about with Christ, mm-hmm. he, he it's that inverted pyramid where he is serving everybody else above him. That is, you know, talk about sustainability because this has sort of come up in what. Rick Warren is doing some stuff now with this health thing. It's actually mm-hmm. sustaining. And I appreciate our Futurians emailing me about it. Sustainability on it. That is the true, real sustainability is a kingdom that he sets up of servants mm-hmm. that will last forever. Whereas the kingdom of Antichrist will implode of its own. God doesn't even have to intervene with that because when selfishness runs uh, a system, it mm-hmm. will destroy. If Aldous Huxley and his elites got this thing, their system wouldn't last long at all because they would all claw and fight over each other. Hmm. And that's why even if the powers of Satan, you know, uh, completely were unleashed and, and you know, ran their system without any kind of check from God at all, it would quickly destroy because of the cumulative selfishness cannot make a sustainable system. Mm-hmm. Interesting. 
Interesting. You know what else? Uh, you know, the fact that uh, you can see this whole arc of uh, of Jesus, you know, like I was saying earlier, to sort of breaking bonds and busting loose and, and healing people in ways that they would never expect mm-hmm. and all this stuff. And right when you get to the point where it's like most intense for Jesus, what is he doing with his yeah. what what is he doing with his people? He's saying, you know, go out and love one another because that's what's going to dis- differentiate you. Yeah. Um, and indeed, you see that uh, even today in in places where, like I was just reading today about Darfur. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the Episcopalian Church, it went from 30 churches in the region there to 800 hmm. in inside of about three years. because and, and there was no protection from the law. Muslims could go and burn churches and kill yeah. people who identified as Christians yeah, at now will. They, these aren't... The kind of liberal pretender churches that we have over here, the ones that are over there, I think most of them are known as Anglican. They're mm-hmm. actually very conservative in Africa. In fact, I, I most so. of them... I, I know very little about it. Most so. of them have become archbishops over the churches here, the Episcopal churches, that have left, you know, because uh, the other ones are pushing a homosexual agenda here mm-hmm. in the in the top of the evangelical... Uh, the, um, church here in the, in the U.S. and so they've gone under the leadership of of African ministers hmm. because the African now is sort of leading the movement of the Anglican Church right now. Well, it's like um, um, one church father said, an anti-Nicene church father said, "Really, God's kingdom is watered by the blood of martyrs and saints." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You have a story for us? Well. Um, Along those lines, I'd mentioned it. Uh, you know, all this talk in, in kind of a philosophical arena here. We'll throw this out. Um, this is a, a little blurb from an article, longer article by Peter Tenenbaum. Okay. Um, <laughs> I need to start picking people, picking articles yeah. that just have short names. Well, like I always get the Russian scientists. Ed, this article is by Ed Smith. Right. You know, right. this is Bob Jones here. Um, the the title of the article is Marx and Engels and the Theory of Dialectic, Dialectic Materialism. Um, this is an uh, this is an opening quote from Ludwig von Mises's Human Action. Yeah, he's a famous economist. Very famous economy, uh, economist. I'm kind of a recovering Keynesian, trying to stuff my brain full of mm-hmm. Mises. Theories. Lou Rockwell, Ron Paul, these kind of guys mm-hmm. are very much behind it. Mish, yeah. who comes on our show, mm-hmm. economic guy. Okay. Yeah, it's so it's so interesting, so right, and yeah. so because a lot of our listeners are not economists, so mm-hmm. make sure you explain that to them. Yeah, it sounds like a heavy duty story. Yep. Uh, this is Mises writing. A socialist advocates socialism because he is fully convinced that the supreme dictator of the socialist commonwealth will be reason him will be reasonable from his, the individual socialist's point of view, that he will aim at those ends of which he, the individual socialist, fully approves, and that he will try to attain these ends by choosing means which he, the individual socialist, would also choose. Every socialist calls only that system a genuinely socialist system in which these conditions are completely fulfilled. All other brands claiming the name uh, socialism or counterfeit systems entirely different from true socialism, so says the the imaginary socialist. Every socialist is a disguised dictator. Woe to all dissenters. They have forfeited their right to live and must be, quote, liquidated. The market economy makes peaceful cooperation among people possible in spite of the fact that they disagree with regard to their value judgments. 
In the plans of the socialists, there is no room left for dissenting views. Their principle is Gleichschaltung, uh, which is German. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not Klingon. I thought, boy, you could say that again. Gleichschaltung. Um, perfect uniformity enforced by the police. Mm-hmm. And I, I read that, and I was like, man, that's profound. Um, when Karl Marx wrote his major treatise, Das Kapital, it was published in 1867. He purchased, uh, he based his economic research on the work of classical economists who had failed to produce a satisfactory theory of value. He thus adopted and further developed Smith's, uh, that's Adam Smith, and Ricardo, another famous economist's labor theory of value, a theory that can be traced back even further uh, to philosopher and, you know, theologian Thomas Aquinas, and even further back to a Muslim scholar named Ibn Khaldun, a very interesting guy. Mm-hmm. He was also, I think, a he Muslim embedded, scholar. Yeah, he also, mm-hmm. I think, he uh, believed he embedded zero and algebra, and um, that's a pretty, pretty important uh, discovery. Uh, yeah, all of our modern accounting systems depend upon that number yeah. zero. Yep, uh, interesting guy. I haven't read much about him, but I've run, run into him. Um, shortly after the publication of Marx's treatise, William Stanley Jevons published. The Theory of Political Economy, and Karl Menger published Principles of Economics. Both authors had independently developed the concept of marginal utility, uh, i.e. the subjectivistic theory of value. The idea is that um, we all value, we all seek towards our value, you know, things that we value. Um, And this thing, my hat here, my John Deere hat may not be any use to you, but it's important to me, and so at some point, uh, though this value is subjective, ultimately this thing is only as good as as, as expensive as what I'm willing to pay for it. Yeah. That's kind of a you know I don't have the educational background necessary to listen to Future Quake. You just blow my mind all the time with these stories. Sorry, man. I'll yeah. get, I'll be get back to the Britney Except Spears d- stuff. Dumb it down. Talk slow for me. Yeah. This new theory finally solved the value paradox. That is a southern accent. <laughs> I'm offended at that. Hey Mr. man, one of us one of us is like like practically like a farmer and the other one of us is an engineer. Not even that useful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, when you mentioned in, uh, inventing zero, I thought, "Hey, now I can express my salary correctly." I was going to say, "Now I can express yeah. my IQ." Thank yeah, you, Ibn Khaldun. Okay, proceed. Okay. Just just explain uh, clearly for me here. Uh, this new theory finally solved what's called the value paradox that classical economists had been unable to explain. The classical example of the value paradox is given by the facts that, e.g., a diamond generally costs a lot more than water, even though water seems the more valuable resource since it's indispensable for survival. Right? The, the, the other, other side of that is... How much, how much does this cost? What people are willing to pay for. Mm-hmm. Marx never revised his views on the labor theory of value, though, in spite of the fact that they had been thoroughly refuted and superseded shortly after the publication of Das Kapital. As it were, if the labor theory of value is to be rejected, then much of the Marxian theory falls flat. The roots of the socialist calculation problem can be traced back to the labor theory of value as well. Indeed, as Mises Mises notes in Human Action, it wasn't even the intention of Marx to supplant the then-existing economic theory by a valid theory of his own. Um, Economic theory appeared to him unassailable, so he merely thought to disparage it. Um, So he can't beat him, so he's going to call it names. Uh, 
He did so by asserting that it was ideological, that is to say that it merely served the ends of certain classes of people to, to the detriment of other classes. Specifically, Marx held that it served as a rationalization of the goals of bourgeois capitalist exploiters to the detriment of proletarian workers. Mises points out that Marx and Engels resorted to polylogism, um, which is shorthand for not making sense, in order to sidestep the need to refute economic arguments by logical, uh, rational thinking. They averred that there could not that there is not a single system of logical reasoning, but that there is a proletarian logic uh, arraigned against a bourgeois logic. So there's two sets of logics that don't necessarily make sense or interact. Mm. In short, the minds of members of the proletarian class are supposedly working with logic of their own. This proletarian logic is, according to Marx, the only correct one, whereas the tainted mind of the bourgeois is incapable of producing anything but ideologically moted, uh, motivated uh, apologetics for capitalist exploitation. So, so Marx has set the proletariat as an idol. Wow, but that is extremely insightful. They are beyond further critique. Mm-hmm. Because they, they are vis-a-vis the illogical by default. Mm-hmm. But they're the fount of all wisdom and truth. Oh, yeah. yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. The, the, bourge- the bourgeois is is, yeah. is fundamentally illogical, and yeah. the proletarian is only logical. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, logic is universal. The correctness or incorrectness of a theory is independent of ideological considerations. Logic and deductive reasoning, as such, are, uh, as, he, as Mises writes, wort frei. That is not ideological. In terms of establishing whether a theory is correct or not, the person motives, the personal motives of those creating the theory are irrelevant. Um, Mises provides, Ludwig von Mises provides an illuminating example. For the sake of argument, we may admit that every effort to attain truth is motivated by considerations of its practical utilization for the attainment of some end. But this does not answer the question of why an ideological, i.e. false theory, should be rendered better service than a correct one. The fact that the practical application of a theory results in the outcome predicted on the basis of this theory is universally considered a confirmation of its correctness. It is paradoxical to assert that a vicious vicious theory is from any point of view more useful than a correct, correct one. Men use firearms. In order to improve these weapons, they develop the science of ballistics. But, of course, precisely because they were eager to hunt game and to kill one another, uh, correct ballistics, a merely ideological ballistics, would not have been of any use. So if I understand this, where this is going, because this is pretty deep language, Mm -hmm. is that they come up with an ideology that maybe can't be grounded in absolute truth, but it serves the aim of furthering the goal. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it becomes sort of a Mm pseudo-truth. It's like... It's it's like an electrical stuff. You have an ultimate ground to earth, mm-hmm. but you can also set up sort of a temporary ground on something else, and it's a ground relative to everything else. Mm-hmm. So if you set it as a relative truth and it furthers your aim for what you're doing, it doesn't have to connect to the ultimate ground of truth. Ding, you're you're that is exactly where I was going for it. I I, I love doing the show with you because it's like you read my mind and come up with an example that's. Ten times better than anything I could. I'm an absolute idiot. I didn't understand half of that, but sure you did. Just you just gave me an incredible. You just gave me and the audience an incredible example of how 
how perfectly this all works out. Um, so let me just let me just finish here. This article is much long, but you've kind of okay. gotten the idea out of it. Uh, and then I'll just provide a little bit of commentary back on our earlier stories. Okay, good, because um, we got a bunch of other stories. Oh we're my like gosh. our we're like on our third story. So, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, Marx then introduced a mystical quality into his work based on his own refined version of Hegelian dialectic, namely the assertion that history follows a predetermined plan, a plan that Hegel's philosophy was designed by the mythic, mythical Geist, whose uh, time on Earth was none other than whose whose who savior on earth was none other than Hegel himself. In Marxian theory, this predetermined plan finds its end point in the abolition, abolition of private property and the state uh, arrogating sole ownership of the means of production to itself. Uh, communism, communism is held by Marx to be the end point of an ineb- inevitable historical evolution, and indeed possibly in Marx's mind, a spiritual one. As Mises points out, Marx does not provide us with the source of his intuition. There is no logical explanation offered for this alleged historical determinism. Marx Marx simply listened to an inner voice. Well, we know who that was because even Reverend Wormbrand documents that Marx was not an atheist, he was actually a Satanist by his own admission. I did not know that. Yes. He he, he, he um, did not believe in any... I mean, it wasn't like he didn't believe in any spirit world. He actually was a professed Satanist. Um, um, like, dumbfounded and... Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> <laughs> You're supposed to do one of those things they do in the cartoons. I, 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 yeah, I have to go into Lost and Found because my jaw is over there. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Wow. So that's where he got his inspiration. Well, you, I, I just I just wasted everybody's time then. I'm sorry. No, you didn't. Apologize. No, you didn't. In fact, you've inspired me. I want to develop our own relativistic grounding of truth. Mm-hmm. The, the truth being that Dr. Future and Tom Bionic are always right. Mm-hmm. So then everything we evaluate will be based upon the p- fact that, A, since we're always right, how does everything stack up to you and me? Mm-hmm. How's that sound? Would that be a good one we could... Yeah, to serve our ideology. I'm I'm cool with that. I'm okay. cool with that. One thing I've noticed. The I'll, only problem is I hope people don't listen to the archive because then you'll see where we've changed our mind over time. Changed opinions and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah that doesn't work as well. Scary. Yeah. Um, one thing that's interesting is if, if you take all of this philosophical ideology and change communism to new age, which you see is people again. You know, what did Marx do? In short, he resorted to unreason. To bring values over, uh, you know, ideological values over into his system to make it work, and you mm-hmm. see the exact same thing going on with New Age teaching and New Age philosophy mm-hmm. and other so many other philosophies. They yeah. reach over into unreason, grab these values, bring them back, and say they're mine now. Yeah, and Christians yeah. go, okay. And people need to listen to stories like yours and read those references so they even understand how to recognize it. Mm-hmm. Pick up where it is, and even though it may not be as breezy reading as one of these things you get in the Christian bookstore, mm-hmm. where they have some kind of heartwarming tale on the frontier or something. Buffy and Brock meet yeah. just before the rapture. That's what they need to read <laughs> so they can understand who's messing with their brain. Well, it's interesting to it's interesting to note that the closer that I see the, when people get saved, the fundamental praxis happens where their ethical mind their their ethical shift goes from fundamentally being self-centered and mm-hmm. you know causally related to law and ritual and what's good for me mm-hmm. and how how 
what was good for me yesterday. Yeah. I can accomplish this stuff to fundamentally other shifted to people, right. other people. How can I serve this person? How can I serve, mm-hmm. let's say, a greater good? Um, because sometimes the shift mm-hmm. is in different theological directions, but it's it, always... And part of the way, they, the reason they can do that is because they finally got what they really needed. Well, I'm telling you, man, you're like, we must be wearing like the helmet of obedience over here. No, the helmet of agreement. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> a new one. Yeah. Hey, I got something very uh, mundane and plebeian to read. Yeah. And this was first... Sorry, sorry if I bored any of our Futurians. Like, I don't... 500,000 so. radio dials. I'm a little slower click. than the average, so it takes me a while oh, yeah, to connect with the, the dots. Yeah, PhD in engineering. Oh, I'm <clears> so slow. Yeah, that and a dollar gets you a cup of coffee. Uh, this is one that a couple of our Futurian listeners emailed me early in this week, and uh, I'm not sure when this show's airing, so it might be a little while later, but um, <clears throat> they actually sent me a uh, government uh, website where they actually, uh, govusa.gov. Mm-hmm. Uh, where you, they actually do solicitations to buy stuff, the government. Mm-hmm. And it looks legitimate. I mean, it's like I've responded to this a lot of these writing proposals. This is all those FEMA contracts. Things, is it? Well, just don't take my you know, thunder away okay. here, okay? <laughs> this is an RFI, which is, stands for Request for Information in the Government, mm-hmm. for prepackaged commercial meals. This is Federal oh, Business gosh, Opportunities. Yeah, I, I won't steal your uh, I'm just going to hit a few high points because mm-hmm. it's actually a official gov- uh, contract solicitation. But uh, they're, they're looking for sources sought. Federal, and this is, I'm reading from the government website, Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, procures and stores prepackaged commercial meals to support readiness capability for immediate distribution to, to disaster survivors routinely. The purpose of this request for information is to identify sources of supply for meals in support of disaster relief efforts based on a catastrophic disaster event within the new Madrid fault system for a survivor population of 7 million people to be utilized for the sustainment of life during a 10-day period of operations. FEMA is considering the following specification of 14 million meals a day. Uh, and then they saw how much you get. Basically, you get 12 ounces of stuff, and your calories is 1,200 calories per meal, so not too bad. Uh, and then they, they give exactly how much sodium and fat it can be. Uh, and then it includes some snacks and butter squeezers and things like that. Here's some of the specifications on the food that they order. Mm-hmm. Again, this is for New Madrid Fault, 7 million people still living. Um, they have to say what kind of organization you are. Um, let's see. Can you deliver it in a 24-hour period? Um, what's your implementation plan for these orders? Um, uh, let's see here. Can you deliver products directly to FEMA's CONUS distribution centers? Um, uh, I'm trying to throw the other information here. I may. I, um, anyway, I've read some other information on this. That that's the key stuff. It was a quick one, but uh, the 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 information I read is that the the food from another reference I had here can only keep for I think it was like two years or maybe less. Thirty six months. 36 months. Mm-hmm. Okay, 36 months. So that food would be wasteful if they didn't anticipate the possibility of something in 36 months. Yeah. Now, to to, to I, I'm, I'm trying to turn over a new leaf of not just being the first button immediately going to conspiratorial, you know. Conspiracy. View. Conspiracy. That's the first thing. It, only when everything else has been dismissed as possibilities. Okay, Sandy mm-hmm. Chick. Um, uh, it, 
We we all know if you ever read about the New Madrid Fault, they're right there on by the Mississippi River, by Tennessee, Memphis area, and in mm-hmm. St. Louis, mm-hmm. that it could go at any time, and it had supposedly uh, the largest earthquake, at least I think in the contiguous U.S. I think it was like a nineteen nine point two, something like that. Um, oh. Yeah. Right there. I don't know if you know about it. Being a California guy, well, I probably no, didn't hear about it. I know it. nothing about this it. This was in the early 20th century, I believe, when it happened. It could have been somewhat in the 19th, but around then. But it was so major earthquake back then. You know, relatively modern times mm-hmm. that it made the Mississippi River run upstream for a while. And it actually wow. rang the bells in Philadelphia, if my memory serves me correctly. So that's a that's a pretty Philadelphia. That's a pretty hefty earthquake. I'm just like I'm just kind of like. I mean, even, I mean, it's much bigger than the San Francisco earthquake, uh-huh. and you know, of course, that area was not super populated then, so that limited, you know, what could be knocked down or whatever like mm-hmm. that. But evidently, all of a sudden, they're deciding to spend a good bit of money to buy something that has a short shelf life. Um, could be just being prudent. But it's fascinating to think, are they aware of something that we may not know about? Mm-hmm. Or perhaps even causing something with a super secret weapon or something. People are suspecting that possibility. I know that I know that China, China, one of China's major newspapers flat out accused the United States of, ha- of causing mm-hmm. their last earthquake. Uh, and then, yeah. you know. They talked about that when I was working in the military labs, mm-hmm. when they'd give us presentations. And I'm not talking about anything classified, so I can talk about it. Mm-hmm. When I would sit there in their meetings about, like, Air Force 2020, causing those kind of weather pattern over the battlefield, earthquakes, other kind of things, were talked about as a capability that was expected in Air Force 2020. Wow. Now, that doesn't say how soon before then. It just means by then that will have already been in place and be one of our tools. So, who knows how much earlier that might be. Maybe we should do a show on HARP. We uh, could. You know, of course, everybody's talked about it. Already. Uh, I don't know what we'll else get we can some, add, but... We'll get, we'll get some of the scientists on from HARP, maybe. Yeah, yeah, we could do that. Go down and knock um, on the door or something. like to know what they're doing now, you know, in the future. Mm-hmm. Can I, since that was quick, can I give a quick shout-out to some friends of mine Please listening do. out there? Mm-hmm. I have some old friends that go back decades in my life. That it meant a lot to me in my life growing up, mm-hmm. and have since become regular listeners to our show. And mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever acknowledged them. Yeah. I'd like to first say hi to Chuck out yeah. there in Wisconsin. Uh, probably be having an email from him shortly to read. Mm-hmm. And someone who's very important in my Christian walk in my younger days. Robert and, Hyde. And uh, oh, of course, Robert Hyde's always. <laughs> a de- oh, oh default. I thought this was a different person. Uh, but but Chuck uh, uh, Chuck actually starred in one of my movies I produced. Sweet. Played a played a Nazi guard. Uh, in a movie I produced, and uh, but he's a he's a great guy, loves the Lord, really sharp person, and uh, always challenges me, my Christian walk. And the other fella uh, is uh, out up toward where I'm from, Louisville area, mm-hmm. and that's Gene. And my friend Gene, I've reestablished contact with him. He mm-hmm. was somebody else. He went to engineering school with me, and uh, he's a great Christian, and uh, he raced stock cars along with me. Wow. And we both had stock cars at the same time. Of course, he was a lot better than I was. But anyway, and a lot better engineer. But he's still he's still doing that. And uh, he has a long commute every week uh, over to West Virginia from where he is in Louisville. And now, wow. since he's become aware of this future quake deal, he puts on his shows and listens to 
probably like five hours or something of future quake each he's way. He's got a lot to catch up on, Gene. Can you imagine what he must be? I bet he must he, be a wreck when he gets to work. He probably looks like the, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Repo Man, where the <laughs> scientist is driving the alien in the back and he's like sort of out of his mind looking. Yeah. That's sure what he looks like when he arrives in West Virginia. I, I imagine him looking like Christopher Lloyd from Back to the Future. Yeah. Great Scott! Oh, oh my God! Only not as organized. Yeah. Yeah, and together. So I just want to give a call out to Chuck and Gene. I love you all and appreciate it. So mm-hmm. hit us a story. All right. Uh, I promise to make it much less painful than the last one. Okay. I need something a little more intellectual this time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, social networking under fresh attack as, as tide of U.S. cyber skepticism sweeps U.S., Via the Guardian, Twitter and Facebook don't connect people. They isolate them from reality, says a rising number of academics. And I would agree to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way in which people frantically communicate online via Twitter, Facebook, and instant messaging can be seen as a form of modern madness, according to a leading American sociologist. A behavior that has become typical may still express the problems that once caused uh, us to see it as pathological. MIT professor Sherry Turkle writes in her new book, Alone Together, which is a leading attack on the information age. Turkle's book, published in the UK the next month, has caused a sensation in America, which is usually more obsessed with the merits of social networking. She appeared last week on Stephen Colbert's late-night comedy show, The Colbert Report. Isn't it fascinating that a research scientist publishes a major book and it, the place they go to really mm-hmm. talk about it in, with the meaty stuff is a comedy show? Mm-hmm. What does that say about about um, isolation from reality? Yeah, I think the Daily Show sort of started that trend. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Stewart. Yeah, John Stewart, and mm-hmm. then Colbert. When Turkle says uh, said she had been at funerals where people checked their iPhones, Colbert equipped, "We all say goodbye in our own way." <laughs> uh, Turkle's thesis is simple: technology is threatening to dominate our lives and make us less human. Under the illusion of allowing us to communicate better, it is actually isolating us from real human interactions in a cyber reality that is a poor imitation of the real world. But Turkle's book is far from the only work of its kind. An intellectual backlash in America is calling for a rejection of some of the values and methods of modern communications, like television. That's that's mm-hmm. me. Uh, it is a huge backlash. The different kinds of people that peop the different kinds of communication that people are using have becomes something that scares people, Professor William Kist, an education expert at Kent University, Ohio. The list of attacks on social media is a long one and comes from all corners of academia and popular culture. A recent bestseller in the U.S., The Shallows, by Nicholas Carr, suggested that the use of Internet, the Internet was altering the way we think to much less, to make us less capable of digesting large and complex amounts of information, such as books and magazine articles. The book was based on an essay that Carr wrote in the Atlantic magazine. It was just an emphatic and it was just as emphatic and had and was headlined "Is Google Making Us Stupid?" Um, mm. And I gotta I gotta say, after reading several of these things, I've noticed my online reading habits. Mm-hmm. It's totally, uh, I would have to say, unfortunately, fits this. If I can't get something good out of it in three minutes, yeah. I click open something else. Yeah. You know, I click open a you know. Right-click, open a new tab, something mm-hmm. different. Um, Can you imagine out on the frontier when books were hard to come by mm-hmm. and when it was a real deal? If you got your hands on one, you treasured it, and you didn't care how good it was or not. You just mm-hmm. had something to take your mind away. Well, 
Well, to combat that, I've decided to have a new practice. You know, I read a lot of different books and, you know, always research mm-hmm. and stuff for Future Quake. My new practice, and I'll throw this out there for other other Futurians, is to find one book that you is good and let it influence you for the year. Mm. You know, take it, go back to it, study it, reread it, um, you know, take it apart. Like the Nephilim and the Pyramid of the Apocalypse, you would just take that yeah. to heart and yeah, practice something. that. Yeah, the the uh, the Garden of Eden, Eden six six six. Okay, and, uh, I can't remember the whole title. Okay, yeah, um, uh, something like that. You know. Yeah, yeah. Um, interestingly for me, the book is actually my my learn to read biblical Greek yeah. textbook. Okay, trying to spend like an hour a day wringing the meat out of that one. Focus. Yep. Not just be. Da, 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 here, there, there, da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. which is, I guess, probably part of the elite plan too. It's just to have us flit about so much, mm-hmm. just uh, you know, pitter pattering around, basically. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, uh, another strand of thought in the field of cyber skepticism is found in Net Delusion by Evgeny uh, Morozov. That's actually a pretty easy one, mm-hmm. as far as Russian scientists go. He argues that social media has bred a generation of slacktivists. It has made people lazy and enshrined the illusion that clicking a mouse is a form of activism equal to real-world donations of money and time. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Maybe. I don't know. All right. Um, uh, I'll just finish up here. Yeah. Uh, Turkle's book, however, has sparked the most debate by far. It's a cry de courier. What should, I don't know what that means. For putting down the BlackBerry, ignoring Facebook, and shunning Twitter. We have invested in inspiring and enhancing technologies, uh, yet we have allowed them to diminish us, she says. So there, there I'll yeah. leave it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I say something controversial, but it seems like a lot of Facebook activity is mostly gossip focused. But A hundred percent of it is. <laughs> I've noticed that. Uh, I originally got a got a, uh, a stop sleep paralysis thing going, and I think that I spend uh, not enough time on there yeah. doing productive work. So I've decided to limit it to like ten minutes a day. You know. Well, that's good because I'm still struggling with emails and things because I get some really great emails. But somebody asked me about Calvinism the other day. Yeah. How to you know answer that in two or three minutes? Oh, you know? great. So ask them about who the elect are. Well, before we go down that route, how about I oh jump into a story real quick? I was going to say, that could, that could be like a whole show. Let me just read one for a little bit of time so we can close with some uh, viewer or listener mails. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a sanity check story, okay? Mm-hmm. Americans are just as likely to get struck by lightning than killed by terrorists. Huh. Which is why Homeland Security's anti-American tattletale program is about political persecution, not genuine safety. This is uh, Paul Watson, again from PrisonPlanet.com. Mm-hmm. News that an alleged suicide bomber killed 31 people and injured over 100 after an explosion at Russia's biggest airport is sure to provide the establishment media and governments in the West more grist with which to sell their fear-mongering agenda. When in reality, Americans are just as likely to be killed by peanut allergies, accident-causing deer and lightning strikes, than they are by terrorists. Mm-hmm. Which is funny because I don't hear um, the conservative evangelical community, you know, related to us. Decrying to decrying. peanut allergies. They don't get together and say, we've got to do something to stop this. And lightning strikes. God wants to stop, you know, the deer. That you would think lightning it. strikes would be. The, yeah. Know. yeah. You'd think that they could put a better story We're around that pray, one. Pray over that. Yeah. yeah. Um, sorry about my voice here. My 
got a terrible cold or allergy or something here, mm-hmm. but uh, roughly the same number as those unfortunately killed in today's suicide bombing will die on America's roads today as well as tomorrow and, in mm. fact, every day of the year. An average of 115 Americans are killed in car accidents daily, about one every 13 minutes. But you will never see it make national headlines, never mind global attention. And why is that? Because every time we climb in our cars, we subconsciously accept the price of freedom, which is the chance of being killed or injured. We take a gamble every time we board an airplane, cast core down a ski slope, or go up in a hot air balloon. We do so because the benefits of being a free human being are infinitely more rewarding than living in constant fear and, and demanding omnipresent security, which is never achievable anyway. Hmm. Despite the constant drumbeat of establishment fear-mongering about the imminent threat of terrorist attacks, uh, the likelihood of actually being a victim of one is infinitesimally small and only highlights how, how such threats are hyperbolically exaggerated for political purposes. You know what would be awesome? It's very important for people to understand this. Uh, I know. You know what would be awesome, uh, as a side note, is to take that statistical evidence there that they've already generated to make this report yeah. and then uh, form a regression to show like how likely it was for somebody to be uh, a victim of, quote, a terrorist attack, unquote, um, on days where the government was running a uh, terrorism task force, quote, exercise, unquote. About 100% correlation. Pretty much. Yeah, between those. Yep. And if you all don't know, uh, look up things like Terror Storm and things. Let's talk about Mm -hmm. the British 7-7 attacks and how the exact simulation of a terror drill was happening on the exact Mm -hmm. same buses and the exact same day Mm -hmm. with bombs at the time that they really happened. NORAD thought it was a simulation. I mean... As I'm to understand, NORAD was only switched off for four hours and one time in its 53-year history. So. And it was the four hours of 911. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's a good explanation for that. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> it says, to equal the danger that Americans place themselves in every day by driving their car down the highway, there would have to be a September 11th every month. To reach the same level of risk that one undertakes in boarding an airline, you only have to travel 11 miles in a car. Until 2001, far fewer Americans were killed in any grouping of years by all forms of international terrorism than were killed by lightning, and almost none of those terrorist deaths occurred within the United States itself. Even with the September 11 attacks included, the number of Americans killed by international terrorism since the late 60s, which is when the State Department began counting, is about the same as the number of Americans killed over the same period by lightning, Hmm. uh, accident-causing deer, or severe allergenic reaction to peanuts, writes Ohio University's John Muller in a report entitled A False Sense of Insecurity. It, I mean, how much do people now just get scared at home about the terrorists are going to get us, the you know, the Muslims are going to get us, they're, they're going like, to blow each one of us it's up. It's like they're coming die. over the gate and they're, they're coming over the fence and we got to uh. stand there and, you know, our police officers are in a 360-degree battlefield where uh-huh. all the guns are pointing at them from behind trees and there's... Yeah. You know, guys crawling around in the sewer with scimitars in their teeth. Except the the data doesn't confirm any of this. Yeah. That's going on. Um, <clears throat> you would have to, I think you would have to retreat into a into a situation of unreality, uh-huh. much like Marx and uh, uh, Commander Flynn from our earlier mm-hmm. story. In, in, in fact, reacting this way is the only way to help the terrorists win. I mean, if there if there were, let's let's say there were terrorists, they weren't state sponsored, okay, mm-hmm. which we know that few if any. But if there were, they don't have enough resources to wipe us all out. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. So the only way they can do it is they make us all scared to death. So if we say, you know, that's terrible, get them if you can, but we're going to go about our lives. Mm-hmm. That's the real way to defeat them. And in fact, that's what Israel does. Mm-hmm. Israel goes on about their business when they have bombs go off. You know, mm-hmm. they'll go chase, try to get chased them in. But they don't stop what they're doing because they realize that, that they've won or any, any country exposed to terrorism. Mm-hmm. So we, we are our own real enemies in this behalf when we respond this mm-hmm. way to these kind of things. And it's been manufactured, and we need to go find out why are these people telling us to be so afraid? Why why are people not only in our mass media, our government, but even our Christian media mm-hmm. telling us these kind of things? Um, well, it's interesting that the, the biblical invective of... Um, you know, fear is perfect. Love casts out all fear. That's exactly right. So it's really our fear is a state. It is a measurement or a barometer of our shortcoming of love. I think that that would be very accurate. Well, let me wrap up here. Um, uh, it says, for all the attention, this is from the author of this from Ohio University. He says, for all the attention evokes, terrorism actually causes rather little damage and the likelihood that any individual will become a victim in most places is microscopic, includes Mueller, which is precisely why Homeland Security's gradual takeover of American society and its attempt to make citizens spy on each other in the name of preventing terrorism has nothing to do with providing some phantom sense of security and everything to do with indoctrinating the slaves to maintain complete obedience to their would-be slave masters. Now, if I could say in conclusion... Uh, and if you, Futurians, if you're new listening to us, and this is different thinking, I want to challenge you. When you think about terrorism and its threat, I w- just use some logic right now, okay? What we just shared with you was some statistics. Mm-hmm. That is a sanity check for the hysteria our government and our media tell us. Think about if, what if terrorists really exist out there? That's a if they are, life. okay, like what we've been told they are. And... If you were our government leader, if you were a leader in government, and we had terrorists that wanted to sneak in our country and do all these things to us, would you send your troops, which could actually stop them militarily, and send them on the other side of the earth to chase what had been told to be possibly 20 al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, and to chase them around there, or another place where there's really no al-Qaeda, but yet leave your borders completely open and unmonitored? Would would that make any sense if that really is what the real threat is? It's all the fault of and just liberals. Just think about that. <laughs> think about it. And I also want to tell you, if we have these terrorists that are so prevalent in our country and they're so interspersed throughout our culture, and I'm not saying anything new here. They know we have water supplies. They know we have food supplies. They know, you know, there's been individuals that have put stuff on the store shelves. And poison people like Tylenol and different things like that. So, I mean, it can be done if there's mm-hmm. a motive. With all that out there and with all these resources supposedly from the bad guys, why are we not seeing larger scale over? This has been ten, almost 10 years since then. How come we're not seeing that if this is what their real motive is, is to do this kind of thing? Use your common sense for a minute and think this through and see that it doesn't add up. Mm-hmm. It does. It doesn't meet the sanity test mm-hmm. of why these things aren't happening. If what we're told the scenario is legitimate, mm-hmm. you know, stop believing the hysteria. Start just adding two and two together, because what what you'll what you'll discover is something actually much more fearful than than these terrorists, mm-hmm. than a handful of guys, you know, with some little improvised devices and stuff. There's something much more to be concerned about 
that, that actually passes the sniff test, particularly when you find out almost every one of these, quote, terrorist events that were just stopped or, or happened or aborted. Have, have some really weird government complicity. Had government people yeah. running it every single time. And it's always at a time when the public seems to wane in their interest in the mm-hmm. war on terror, when suddenly these things happen. It just starts connecting the dots. You know that um, one of the things that we talked about uh, earlier uh, a couple of months ago was uh, this guy in Portland who, uh, you know, from from the beginning to the end was kind of coerced by the FBI. You mm-hmm. know, they found him online and they prodded him, and, and then they said, "Here's the bomb," and then they said, "Okay, go blow this thing up," and then caught yeah. him and all this stuff. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I think I might have mentioned this here, but a couple of weeks ago, uh, the FBI, Portland, Oregon, where this whole thing happened, mm-hmm. Portland, Oregon. Uh, a big public vote came up again on whether they Portland, Oregon should reinsert itself as one of the cities that hosts an FBI yeah. joint terrorism task force. And um, I, I never did find the outcome of that, but it's interesting to see that all that stuff happened right before yeah. this whole thing. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And once you see it, it becomes obvious. Mm-hmm. Can I close with just a few of your sure, listener please. emails? Uh, we'll call her a day here. Um, this is someone you may know of, the name of Andrew Hoffman. Never heard of him. They, never heard of him. <laughs> Wrote a book called uh, The New World Order and the Eugenics Wars. I don't listen to hip-hop. Uh, part of our two-book set that we have. Um, he says, uh, uh, I just finished listening to the December 20th Future Quick show, and I want to thank you uh, um, you know, for the show and stuff. Uh, he says, I finally got, now he has a new website I want people to check out called masspropaganda.com. He says, I finally got masspropaganda.com up and running again. Um, he says, he, he's got a post up there, and I just want to read some of it to you to get a taste for his thinking. He also posts at sycamore3.blogspot.com. Occasionally. Robert Hive's site. He's mm-hmm. got a post up right now. Um, he says, first of all, I, w- I must make a confession. I haven't read, in- this is about WikiLeaks. We haven't heard mm-hmm. this while. I've, I've had this email since around the end of December, so it's a little, little dated. But his thinking is always good. He says, first of all, I must make a confession. I haven't read any of the diplomatic cables leaked on WikiLeaks. I've read dozens of stories about them from both mainstream and alternative sources. Or to be more accurate, I have read dozens of stories about WikiLeaks and about Julian Assange and his alleged sexual misconduct. I have read stories in which Assange is reported as a selfless hero, a persecuted martyr of the movement for truth and justice. I've also read stories that call for Assange's execution as a traitor, a spy, or as Joe Biden called him, a high-tech terrorist. WikiLeaks has been portrayed as the essence and culmination of all things that are possible with the Internet. WikiLeaks has also been portrayed as an insidious menace that endangers the lives of American soldiers all over the world. As with so many complex issues, the propaganda machine nearly forces us to pick one of two options. WikiLeaks is good or WikiLeaks is bad. Choose a side and go to war. There's plenty of ammunition for you to use on either side. Mm -hmm. But wait a second. What about the cables themselves? The whole point of WikiLeaks is that information can, uh, can get from whistleblowers to the public unfiltered and uncensored by corporate or government interest. Or is it? Why are we learning now... Uh, were the cables sent to the U.S. State Department, CIA, and media outlets such as The Guardian and New York Times first, before being released on the site. This allowed the establishment media to frame the debate and the story and to make it about WikiLeaks and Assange, not about the information being leaked. Surely Assange and others of WikiLeaks knew this would happen to some extent, although I'm sure Assange hadn't counted on his sexual misadventures being front-page news. 
If the folks at WikiLeaks only cared about the public getting unfiltered access to the cables, they would have posted them without redaction and without giving corporate and government PR flacks a head start on how to spin the story. WikiLeaks itself, however, benefits greatly from the corporate media attention and handling of the story. Can a website have a greater PR coup than to have donating to it uh, be banned by large banks or its site booted off of Amazon? All of a sudden, giving money to WikiLeaks is rebellious and cool. Julian Assange is a rock star. Fox News has yet another boogeyman to induce fear and loathing. The establishment media has tabloid fodder to use for months, attracting desperately needed eyeballs to its dying publications. The only losers in this equation are those of us trying to find out the truth about the way the world operates. Lost in the spectacle of WikiLeaks is any truth that was present in the diplomatic cables. Keeping in mind, of course, that just because something is secret doesn't mean it's true, as Alex Jones recently pointed out. We must remember that if there are any nuggets worth ferreting out in the original cables, those of us who don't work for government or mass media corporations are the ones who will have to dig them out. Being formed is a lot more work than being propagandized, and I have a feeling that I'm not the only one who has fallen for the WikiLeaks spectacle. Hmm. So that is a commentary from our good friend Andrew Hoffman, and I would suggest people go to masspropaganda.com. And he also has a book that's available in a two-book set at futurequake.com uh, with some unique FutureQuake artwork. And mm-hmm. you can get Judge Napolitano's book, too. And those two really frame what we're talking about. If you read those two books, there might even be a little coherent sense from what we talk about here on FutureQuake. Possibly. I mean, from you, maybe. Well, do you as, have any... As one as one, uh, one comment, commenter put it on uh, iTunes... <laughs> The short guy, he's a genius. The tall guy, it's as if it's as if he was smart once, but somebody hit him in the head with a pipe. <laughs> I'm sure they meant that in a good way, if yeah. that's what they said. I, I actually overall enjoyed the review. Yeah, very funny. Uh-huh. And and those of you, if uh, if you go to iTunes, leave a comment too. Yeah. Uh, as long as it's something praising us, you know, to yeah, do that. Something, something amazing. Critical in any way, of course, don't yeah. leave it. But oh, there, it was funny. There were a few there that was obviously gened by, generated by somebody who had. Some weird access to grind with some of our guests. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's when we've arrived. When you see that kind of stuff, that's where we're getting in Alex Jones territory. We yeah, start getting those kind of people showing up. Mm-hmm. Somebody who intimidates me is Merv, who can tell you how to contact us at FutureQuake. FutureQuake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or Internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. We have to go. Disembodied heads are always scary. Yeah, I know. Hey, uh, it's great to be with you all this week. Come back next week for another Future Quake show. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Sayonara. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a Future Quake. Quake, quake, quake.